I'd like to begin with a story that dates back to when I was younger. Not, not nursery age, but, but teenage. You're thinking, oh boy, I can't wait for this. I'd like to kick off with a question this morning. Um, if you're a believer and you're here this morning, who in your life was it that inspired you to believe? Let me ask that question again. If you're a Christian, who was it? Of course, besides Christ, of course, that inspired your Christianity. I'd like to share, again, a personal story with you. Maybe some of you have heard me tell part of it uh, or all of this story before in a message, but contains my uh, answer to the question this morning. When I was about 17 years old, I became very disillusioned with the church. I began drifting away. I was baptized into Christ several years prior uh, to this as a child. I was excited about Christianity, growing in the faith, but I moved with my mother from my home church to a new town, navigated through a few difficult teenage years as we do. They're never fun for anybody. Prior to this, I uh, lost my older brother in a car accident. Lost my father to cancer. After all of this, all these events combined, I began losing interest in the church as well. When I was a kid, my father, my father had been a minister. He'd been an elder in the church. And he obviously had a lot to do with uh, planting those seeds of faith. With him missing as a teenager, I felt as though I couldn't relate to the church anymore. You, you know what I'm saying? I felt as though I just couldn't relate to the church. I felt as though there was no longer a place for me there. I was bothered at the time, although I didn't really know how to express this feeling, but I was bothered at the time by what is perceived as insincerity from some of the people that I came across. Now, ultimately, by the age of 18, be honest, I stopped going to worship, not because of anybody else at the local church, but because I was mad at God. I was just, I was just mad at God. You may have heard me talk about this before, but I have to be honest. I really wasn't all that excited about some of the people that claimed to be his witnesses either. As a young teenage Christian, I'd, I'd go to worship with my mother, and I'd see other Christians sitting in the pews around me. And even though I knew, hey, I was a baptized believer in Jesus, I followed Jesus, I knew that made me a Christian, made me justified before God, made me good enough for God, just like any other Christian, I still found myself sitting next to other Christians in the place where Christians congregate and just not feel quite as Christian-y as those Christians. To be honest, there was, there was a certain kind of, of righteousness loudly being represented in, in the pews. A self-righteousness. Where actions elevated the self, and these spoke louder than words about dying to self for the cause of Christ. You know what I mean? And maybe you've, maybe you've had to deal with this before. Uh, self-righteous, self-righteous believers. Hopefully not in this place, but maybe somewhere, maybe in some church. Maybe you've before experienced a, a smug self-satisfaction from, uh, from the church pews and from tables at a fellowship hall. Maybe you've experienced this attitude where, where people are, are too quick to boisterously proclaim, yes, I'm in the clique. How'd you guess? There's no doubt about it. I'm one of the chosen. 
And can't you see it in the way I dress? Can't you tell it in the way I talk? Don't you catch it in the way I'm always here when I'm supposed to be here? Shouldn't you guess it by the offering I drop in the plate each week? And wouldn't you know it by the way I look down my nose at you for not being just like me? Have you ever been quietly disillusioned by Christians who are obviously so much more Christian-y than you are? It's a very unsettling, very demeaning experience, especially when some of the people who look down from you at a pedestal also want to quote scripture to you about the humility of Jesus. And even as a kid, I saw through this. Now, don't, don't be too shocked about this place, about this church. There wasn't a single person at the time in this congregation we were at that actually said any of these things to, to myself, to me as a young, struggling in the faith orphan, or to my mother as an older, struggling in singlehood widow. But I've got to be honest with you, friends. Overall, the church for me at 17 was not a refuge of solace and spiritual strengthening by the hands and feet of Jesus. It was not. The church for me came to represent alienation, discouragement, and smugness. You could see it in people's mannerisms, body language, hear it in people's conversations. Which pew are we sitting in? Social club mentality. And what's more, I could personally count on this social club to let me know in so many ways that I just wasn't making the cut. Because some folks really love to draw attention to themselves. And so guess what? It wasn't very long before I, I wasn't interested in, interested in darkening that church door anymore. If that was Christianity in practice, I didn't want any part of it. And by the time I was 18, I stopped going to worship altogether. But what, what got me coming back? What got me coming back? Well, again, if you're here this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, let, let me narrow that opening question a little. Who was it besides Christ? Who inspired your Christianity, your faith? Who pushed you towards it? Was it that distant, that self-righteous show-off who thought they were better than everybody? Or was it someone special in your life? Someone that sacrificially looked, sounded, and acted like Jesus Christ? There's a difference. Was it A, somebody loud, arrogant, self-promoting, smug, and self-righteous who called themselves a Christian? Or was it B, an admittedly broken Christ follower who practiced a quiet righteousness? For me, I would guess for many of you as well, it was B. It was, it was choice to be. I returned to the faith of my youth partly because of uh, a couple quietly righteous Christ followers. And you'll find this out from here in the rest of the story. I'll return to it in just a little bit this morning. But here's the disclaimer uh, for the message. Here's the disclaimer for where we're at. I'm not justifying my, my judging of others as a young person. There's a lot of judgment going on from this side. And nor am I struggling with, that we base our faith on how other imperfect people carry themselves. I'm not suggesting that. But Jesus makes it clear, oh church, how you witness to others really does matter. It really does make a difference. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Turn there with me, please. We've got it on the overhead. Jesus says to his followers in verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. 
But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. That's the end of our text this morning. And so our witness to Jesus Christ, and this is so important for the church, brothers and sisters, our practice of Christianity consists of more than what we do. It's more than what we do. It's how we do these things. How we witness to others. And so Jesus says again, back to verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Instead of practicing a quiet righteousness, friends, are we guilty of self-righteously just trying to draw attention to ourselves? That can work its way into our routine if we're not careful because the devil is sneaky and sometimes we even bring him to church with us, don't we? For example, have we ever shown up in, on Sunday mornings and punched a kind of Christian time clock? You know, we're not here because we want to worship God, minister to others that day, but because we want to be noticed by others. Came to church today? Do we commit to social or, or other Christian activity or ministry? Not, not because we're being called to it, but because we think it would look good if people saw us doing it. This is what Jesus is talking about. This, this is what Jesus is getting at here. What about in our homes and, and with our friends and families? Why do we do what we do? When we invite company over, do we, do we make sure a Bible is laid out strategically, maybe out on the coffee table, just to give uh, an impression to the people that come over that, yes, we do actually read it. And it, you might laugh. You, you might laugh at this. Years ago, I knew a couple who actually practiced their righteousness in this manner. Before friends from church would come over, they did more than confirm the house was in order for company. They had to set the Bible out. Get the Bible. Time to set the Bible up. Because, you know, the preacher's coming over and he's never seen one. It sounds silly, but do we do things like this? This is practicing our righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. We're guilty of it in some small way, probably. Ed Stetzer of Lifeway has a couple of his own translations for uh, Matthew 6, verse 1, that I appreciate. One of them he's had up on Twitter. It goes like this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before Twitter. One of his Matthew 6, 1 translations he's posted over on Facebook. It goes, beware of practicing your righteousness before Facebook. I love that. Do we ever host that dinner? Do we ever make those donations? Do we ever volunteer for that service position because it allows us to show off? Because it gives us a plaque with our name on it. Because it makes us one of the cool kids. Practicing our righteousness in order to be seen by others. Now friends, this doesn't mean that our, our serving the Lord shouldn't ever be visible by other people at all. That's, that's not what Jesus is saying. Our brothers and sisters in the church, especially within a small congregation like ours, they're going to be aware of the successful Bible studies we lead or the missions work we engage in or, or the talents, gifts, and resources God has given to us and how generous we are with them. People are going to know these things in a, in a small church. People even know these things in, in neighboring churches and, and sometimes uh, special recognition at a fellowship meal or on social media, it can be a real encouragement. It's a joy, it's a blessing to build others up, to build up brothers and sisters uh, by acknowledging them. It can inspire others to give of themselves righteousness as well. 
And so don't misunderstand. The problem isn't others witnessing our service. The problem is service for the purpose of being seen. Showing up and doing what we do so that other people will give us credit for it. It's a, it's a kind of righteousness that fixates God's people not on being rewarded by God, but by others. Where do you desire your reward? And it's, and it's a kind of righteousness that can ruin our Christian witness altogether. It can be a real problem. I'm sure you've noticed that, that since October, a major part of this discussion through Christ's Sermon on the Mount has been dissecting the behavior of certain religious leaders. We're mentioning the, the teachers of the law quite often over the course of, of this sermon series because Jesus mentions, Jesus refers to these guys quite often from the Mount. I, I was just joking earlier uh, this last week with a minister friend of mine that another appropriate title for a series on the Sermon on the Mount could be those silly Pharisees. You know, Pharisees say the darndest thing, something like that. Jesus is often saying to the followers who gather around them, this is what you're used to seeing. This is what religion means to you guys. This is what you've witnessed down at the places of worship. In the synagogues, this behavior, this pseudo-religion in the name of God, this self-righteousness that's not righteous behavior at all. Follow along with me in verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, he says, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. And so again, uh, there's no doubt that the, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, practiced an attention-seeking form of righteousness. And Jesus is calling them out on it here in this text and in other places. Uh, Jesus does the same in, in Matthew 23, verse 5. Uh, he says, they, the Pharisees, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. Jesus actually goes on in this text, in Matthew 25, to point out that, hey, the titles the Pharisees chose for themselves, such as rabbi, the flair on the clothing in which they adorned themselves, and even their chosen places of seating at worship and dinner tables. It was all self-serving. Do we look around our churches today and see the same problems, the same issues? The Pharisees were in the clique. How'd you guess? These guys were... Of the chosen, no doubt about it, the way they dressed and the way they talked, the way they worshipped, the offerings they brought every week. I'm sure some of them even maybe made a noise to accompany what they dropped in the proverbial passing of the hat. Cha-ching! You might ask when you, when you look at this, man, did, did these guys really blow a trumpet? Uh, Jesus says when they gave, I mean, offering time at the synagogue must have been murder on the ears each week, you know? Culturally and historically speaking, it's, it's difficult to take Jesus literally here when he says the hypocrites sound a trumpet. You see, as attention-seeking as the Pharisees were, we have absolutely no trace in ancient Jewish literature of a practice of a trumpet literally being blown by anybody when they gave to the poor. But now some scholars and preachers have said, well, Jesus isn't referring to a, a trumpet literally being blown in the text. He's referencing the clang of the money as it fell into the metal collection boxes at the synagogue. But again, uh, as we've encountered many times before in the words of Christ, it's more likely Jesus is using hyperbole or exaggeration to prove a point. These hypocrites, Jesus says, they like you to think they serve God. They like you to think this, but in reality, they serve themselves. They sound a trumpet to gather praise from others. 
We might put it this way today. We often see it this way today. Uh, as one commentator offers, these religious leaders, they like to toot their own horn. Sounded a trumpet. They liked to toot their own horn. But this tooting, brothers and sisters, uh, their own tooting is, is all the self-righteous that they're going to get for their efforts, says Jesus. And you can take that how you will. So instead, Jesus continues in verse 3, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Well, we might read this and say, well, how does this statement imply a quiet righteousness? Well, let's start with the beginning of the verse. We don't want to miss that part. We don't want to miss that part, church. This, this part's important. It's safe to assume that when Jesus says, when you give to the needy, when an important word here, Jesus isn't making it an option for his followers to be givers. We, we need to understand that from a get-go. This is part of what he's saying. You see, God expects his people to give as we've been given, and this includes the collection plates on Sunday as we've been instructed by Paul. By the way, do you realize that statistically, even though many Christians have uh, arbitrarily chosen 10% as their, quote, gold standard of giving, and that's not even a new but an Old Testament number, only 10% of church-going Christians actually give that amount on Sundays? Statistically, only 10% actually give 10%. So that's the first thing we, we want to understand from this scripture. Uh, righteous living implies righteous giving as well. But how does Jesus expect us to give? Let's move to the second part of this. Again, he says, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Well, what does this mean? What does this mean? When we write a check for Sunday offering, we're only allowed to use our right hand. I, that works okay for me. I'm right-handed. If you're lefty, you're in trouble, right? Once again, Jesus is turning a phrase. He's actually saying, don't draw attention to yourself. He's saying, believe it or not, folks, in this day and age, not everything we do for the kingdom has to go on Instagram. I'm not sure what the disciples used that was like Instagram, but I'm sure they had something. We can give of our time, talents, and treasure quietly and discreetly, and that's, that's where Jesus is getting at here. It's interesting, though. It, it, you know, it's not, we talked earlier, it's not unbiblical to encourage or motivate others by honoring, uh, giving publicly. In fact, it's, it's entirely biblical. Uh, we can look at the book of Numbers. One commentator makes a reference to the seventh chapter of the book of Numbers in which we're, we're told the names of the donors to the temple. And in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, uh, we're told exactly how much the leaders of Israel gave to build the temple. Uh, the Bible does go on to acknowledge the gift and the giver. The second chapter of Acts, uh, verse 45, in giving the blueprint for Christ's church, describes the Christians, quote, selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. We know this verse well. Jesus himself saw the poor widow in Luke 21 uh, give all that she had, and he favored her because of her motives. These instances are all written down for us today, my friends. And so may others uh, see you practicing your righteousness. Others may be directly blessed by you practicing your righteousness. But do what you do for the Lord and let them follow, not drawing attention to what you're doing for the Lord. And that's the difference here. I'm not sure it's the majority. I'm not sure it's a large percentage. But I'm sure we do see people 
who call out loudly from, from these groups that I'm in the clique and how'd you guess? But when we listen to the still small voice of the Holy Spirit in our giving and living, I think we'll find he's calling us to a quiet righteousness. We might think of it as one author does, as secret service. I thought Luke would like that. That's for him. The whole world may not be watching to see if, if we're really following Jesus, but I believe the disillusioned, I believe our youth might be. And I mentioned how when I was 17, I, I made a decision not to darken the door of a, of a church building anymore. Ten years later, I, I returned to, the, to the, the church of my youth at the encouragement of a, of a couple faithful believers who'd become significant spiritual influences upon me in the workplace. One of them was, a, was an older gentleman who drove a delivery van for the hospital where I worked. The other was the, was the hospital chaplain. These guys were a major influence upon me at the time. I, I was searching. I'd been searching. And they didn't just talk about how they, they went to church and, and talk about church. They, they didn't just loudly advertise the name Jesus like a brand name on a t-shirt or a, a Sam's Club membership card. But you know what they did for Jesus? They followed him. They followed him, and it was seen in the way they would quietly practice their righteousness. And they did it whether people were noticing them doing it or not. If it looked like something was on your mind, they'd, they'd stop and, and talk with you, take time out. If they, if they knew you needed a hand with something, they'd, they'd stop and help you. Didn't matter what it was. One day, one of these individuals was uh, docked pay because he, he stopped and helped a neighbor change a flat tire on the way to work. The neighbor was more important than that paycheck. And I heard about the story uh, from the neighbor after the fact. This is practicing a quiet righteousness. This is too. I own a house in Rochester, Indiana, adorned with a full wall of shelving, which was built by the first individual I mentioned, the van driver, free of charge. All I did was, was buy some wood. I know several of you guys in the, in the congregation that, that would volunteer to help someone unhandy like me with a similar building project, whether you were asked to or not. Gestures like this leave a big impression on people. This is practicing a quiet righteousness. And so, brothers and sisters, I, I challenge you this week. I challenge you this week to, to look around. Look around you. Look around your neighborhood. And maybe some of you are already doing this, and, and, and praise the Lord. But keep looking. See if you don't notice someone who may be disillusioned around you by this noisy, old, broken-down world who could really use that presence in their lives. I'm here to tell you this morning, and I mean that. I, I am here to tell you that practicing a quiet righteousness might go a long way in helping fix these people right up. You just never know. I'd like to close this morning with a few related words from a brother and fellow minister. He writes, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 to 12 that we should aspire to live quietly so that we may walk properly before outsiders. Too often we get caught up in the church with with being successful or being known for who we are. What if your whole life was a, was a failure according to the world's and sometimes even Christian standards? What if we stopped thinking about success in terms of the self? What if we redefine success as just living a life of simple faith? Raising your family, 
being a good neighbor, being the kind of people that people are glad to see. Regarding the question I asked you earlier, if you're a Christian, who was it that inspired your Christianity? Were they of the kind of people that, that you were glad to see? Want to be just like that? Where's that coming from? What's the source for that love and grace you show? Did you see the hands and feet of Jesus when those people came your way? Or were they too busy listening to the sound of applause for who they were in their own minds? Jesus says, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So may we look to the, the, the righteous example of the Son who stands on the mountaintop and calls us to quietly follow him to our eternal reward. This is a pattern that he's made for us to continue in him. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, this is a noisy world and, and we, we know this. And oh Lord, there's, there's a voice. There's a voice in the quiet beyond all the noise and beyond all the, all the greed and the selfishness and the, and the lifting up of the self. Lord, we know that, that you have, you've designed your church. You've willed that your church would look like you. And you've shown us through your word what you look like. When we look at Jesus, we look at you. Lord, I just pray that you would draw us, inspire us, convict us to live a quiet righteousness where we would be a blessing to, to our friends and family and neighbors and, and our communities, Lord. And, and what's more, that, that we, would, we would do what we do to give you glory. We would do what we do to make your name great. <clears throat> Forgive us, Lord, for ever trying to take the glory. Forgive us, Lord, for ever thinking like the world. Help us, Lord, to remember that the example we have before us is one of sacrifice, one of surrender, one of giving everything up others. Lord, I, I thank you for, for each person that's, that's here this morning to hear your word and to come to your table. Lord, I thank you for, for the faith that we all have that you've given each one of us. And Lord, I, I just pray that, that no matter where we are this morning, no matter who we are, that you would, you would draw us closer to you. Remind us how much you love us no matter who we are, no matter where we've been or what we've done, that, that you love us and, and that you want, you want the absolute best for us. You want this, this quiet righteousness to be seen throughout our lives so that we would touch the lives of others. Help us, Lord, this week to, to, to be your hands and feet in our communities. Wherever we're going, that we would, we would, we would serve you and we would serve you for the right reasons and with the best motives. Above all, Lord, I, I thank you for that, the sacrifice. 
I thank you for the price that's been paid that, that none of us could ever be good enough to work off. It is in the name of Jesus I pray these things, amen. And as God's word tells us in Acts 2.38, where does it all begin for us as we're following Jesus? Where does it all begin for Christians? It begins when we're put into those waters of baptism and drawn up new creatures in Jesus. And if you haven't yet made that decision, we invite you to come forward at, at this invitation time. If you have another public decision you'd like to make as well, we invite you to come forward and listen to the call of the leader, Jesus, who's a mighty good leader. Brother Gerald's going to come forward.